0: Isaiah chapter 53. Our text actually begins at the end of chapter 52, and it'll run all the way through chapter 53. Throughout the month of December, we are considering several questions, important questions about Jesus. Who is that baby in the manger? But if we're going to understand the significance of Christmas and why it matters what we think about that baby in the manger, if we're going to celebrate in a godly way, then we must have our minds and hearts set on Him and who He truly is. We must understand who He is and what He has done, and we must respond appropriately with reverence and worship. This is our Christmas uh, study in a nutshell. We began by asking, who is Jesus? And we saw from John chapter 5 that he is the Son of God. He is equal with the Father in his nature, his works, his power, authority, and honor. And then last week we asked the question, why did Jesus come? And we saw from Matthew chapter 1 that he came to save his people from their sins. This week, we build on that by asking a third question. What did Jesus do? That is, how did he actually accomplish the mission for which he came to this earth? How did he actually accomplish the salvation of his people from their sins? And for that, we turn our attention to the Old Testament. To an Old Testament prophecy that talks about the Savior and how he would accomplish the salvation that he has promised. In the book of Isaiah, there are four key sections that are called servant songs. We're not going to look at all four of them today, but those four servant songs are highlighting passages that talk about the Messiah, the Savior that is promised. And they talk about him in terms of a suffering servant. And they tell us a little something about what the life and the death of the Messiah would be like. Well, our text for today is Servant Song number 4. It runs from chapter 52, verse 13, all the way through the end of chapter 53. And the focus, it, it brings into clear focus what the suffering of the Savior would be like, and more importantly, why it matters and what it accomplished hence the question what did jesus do so let's look at the text now and i invite you to follow along as we as we work through this passage starting in isaiah chapter 52 verse 13 behold my servant shall act wisely he shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted as many were astonished at you His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. As you look at this text, you may notice that it's laid out as a poem, as is much of the book of Isaiah. That's why this is called a song, a servant song. And as we are used to with the hymns that we sing, this song is divided up into stanzas, five of them. If you look at how the text is laid out on the page, you can probably pick it out. It is separated. The text is, is divided out into five groups of three verses each. These are the stanzas of the song, and that's how we're going to move through this text. As the text progresses, it builds on this picture of who Jesus is and what he did, especially on the cross, and what it means for us. The focus of this text is on the triumph of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Savior, who suffered and died to save his people from their sins. And my prayer for us, for us today is that this passage would lead us to worship him and to live our lives in the light of his great sacrifice, as the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 12, 1, that we would present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him, which is our reasonable worship. That is my prayer for us today. So let's begin in chapter 52, verses 13 through 15, where we see the announcement of Jesus, the announcement of Jesus. These verses are a sort of preface to chapter 53. They preview what the rest of it's going to cover. They announce the theme of chapter 53, and chapter 53 in turn announces the arrival of the Savior. So this announcement, this preface begins in verse 13, and it says, behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. That's a great place to start, isn't it? This promised Savior is exactly what we would expect him to be. Wise, high, lifted up, and exalted. A great place to start. But we need to understand that this is called a servant song dealing with the suffering servant. And we know there's much suffering involved in this text, and so this is a great place to start, because it tells us what the end game is for this Messiah. It tells us where this is going. It tells us what the culmination of all that suffering is going to be. This passage is going to describe some brutal suffering, but here at the outset is an announcement that no matter how bad it gets, this is the goal. This is where this ends, with the exaltation of the Savior. God is sending a message beforehand to make sure that we know everything that happens to Him is a part of His plan, and He is in control every step of the way. So, when God says, My servant shall act wisely, what does He mean? He means that the Savior will act in accord with the Father's divine will, And that he will be successful in his mission. And then the result is, we read, he shall be exalted. That is a declaration of success and victory. He will be successful. The ultimate end for this Savior, this suffering servant, is exaltation, glory, worship. And the humiliation that is described throughout this text is the means through which he will attain it. Now, look very quickly at the phrase then, he shall be high and lifted up. That's a significant phrase throughout scripture, especially as it refers to deity, as it refers to the Savior. In the Old Testament, this phrase refers specifically to Yahweh, Jehovah God. Isaiah himself used this term, this phrase, in chapter 6, verse 1, when he encounters God in the temple. And he says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And so here, God is telling Isaiah, My servant, the promised Savior, is that one who was lifted high, who is high and lifted up in the temple. And so he will be forever says, I'm telling you about the Messiah, who is the high and exalted one. We don't just see that in the Old Testament, we see it also in the New Testament. Because in the New Testament, Jesus said of himself in John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man, that's Christ, be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And again, in John chapter 8, verse 28, he says, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. That is, I am the Messiah. And that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. Jesus there is speaking of his own lifting up on the cross to die. But in being lifted up as the sacrifice for sin, he is also being lifted up as the Savior of the world, who we will see conquers sin and conquers death and saves his people. And ultimately, we see this lifting up in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6-11, through 11, where Jesus is presented as the one who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a the cross. There's the humiliation. But then look at this. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth. And under the earth, but before we get to that exaltation, before we see the exalted Savior, the divine servant of God must suffer. So, in verse fourteen says, "As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind." Boy, what a contrast to verse thirteen, right? Verse 13 is all about being high and lifted up and exalted. And now we read of his appearance being marred even beyond human recognition. This is how the servant would serve. This is what the Messiah's ministry would be like. And indeed, as we look at the ministry of Christ, particularly as he went to the cross, we see that he was marred so badly that he... Hardly appeared human. And many were astonished at him, just as we read here. That has the idea of a stumbling block. Their jaws hit the floor. They couldn't believe what they were seeing, and it became a stumbling block to their faith. People will look at his humiliation, and they will say, What kind of Savior is this? How could he be a Savior? Beaten beyond recognition and hung on a cross? What kind of God is this? Or, as we read in the New Testament, as he hung on the cross, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel, let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusts in God, let God deliver him. So this exalted Savior will face great humiliation, but... Then verse 15 tells us what the result will be. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. That word so has the beginning, has the idea of thus, or in this way. By way of his humiliation, his suffering and his death, He will do this. What will he do? He will sprinkle many nations. What does that mean? Well, that's a word picture. Building on the idea of shedding his blood. And it has the idea of purifying and blessing and saving the nations. When it says kings shall shut their mouths because of him, it means that even the most glorious men on earth will stand in awe of His glory. Men like to pursue glory, don't they? Men like to pursue glory through triumph on the athletic fields. Men like to pursue glory by rising to power in government. Men like to pursue glory by acquiring all sorts of wealth to them. Think about the most glorious athlete you can think of. Think about the most glorious ruler you can think of in all history. Think about the the wealthiest, most prominent celebrity or billionaire in the world. They will shut their mouths at the revelation of the glory of Jesus the Messiah. That takes us back to Philippians 2 that we just read, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is, is Lord. Now we see a glimpse of that when we come to Christmas. We see a little bit more of a glimpse of that as we get on through Jesus' life and into his death and resurrection. But we will see it fully when that suffering servant returns as the triumphant king. Will we not? Just take a moment and consider what it would be like at this moment for the heavens to split open and for us to see the glory of Christ. Right now. That's in the future. But there is a positive response even right now to the work of this servant, to what Christ the Savior did on the cross. We read, we continue reading, that which has not been told them, they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. That has the idea of opening the eyes of the lost. In other words, while many will look on Jesus, with scorn and rejection as they did his whole life and on the cross as he hung there. Some will see him for who he truly is. They will believe in him as Savior. This is a prophecy of the success of Jesus' mission, the success of the salvation that he brings. He will save his people from their sins. Well... All of that, then, lays the groundwork for chapter 53. The promised Savior will come to earth. He will be humiliated. He will suffer. He will die. He will rise again and be exalted by God the Father. But why? Why do we care? Well, chapter 53 explains that. So let's move on into chapter 53, then, and see, secondly, the rejection of Jesus. Verses one through three. Verse one says, Who has believed what he has heard from us? The us there is the prophets. Who has believed what the prophets have declared? Simply put, not very many. That was Israel's history. That's been history ever since God began revealing himself through the, the written word. This is mankind. We we reveal we we receive the revelation and we don't believe it. We don't pay it any attention. Who has believed? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Well, that's where the prophet brings Israel specifically into the picture, I guess. The Lord revealed himself to Israel first. How did he reveal himself to Israel? Through the scriptures, through the prophets, but specifically, more to the point, how did God reveal himself to mankind? Through the incarnation of Jesus Christ through the birth and life of Jesus the Son of God we read of him in John chapter 1 in these terms verses 10 and 11 he was in the world and the world was made through him yet the world did not know him he came to his own and his own people did not receive him that was Israel when Jesus walked the earth by and large they rejected him as so many others do today. Having received the written revelation of God, with everything in it that we need to know in order to know God and believe in Him, many still do not believe. Why? What are the reasons for this unbelief? Why was he rejected? We see some of these reasons in verse 2. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Why they reject him? Simply put, they reject him because in men's eyes he is unimpressive, unattractive. The young plant and the root out of dry ground, those are word pictures that that have the idea of weakness and humility and frailty. We don't want that in a leader, right? We don't want that in a king. And speaking of a person, it has the idea of insignificance and unworthiness. And on top of that, the idea here of no form or majesty and no beauty, it has the idea of He didn't look like a king to them. He didn't meet their image, their imagination. He looked just like a regular person. No mighty steed, no pageantry, no harem, no minions, nothing that made him look like royalty. Now look at the Gospels and see how people responded to Jesus when he presented himself as the Savior. Who? The carpenter's son? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? The suggested immorality of his mother because of the virgin birth? This The humility of Christ as he walked through his life? His silence before Pilate? His brutal execution? His appearance was not what they expected, and it was not what they demanded in a king or a savior. So their estimation of him was this, not much of a savior, is he? Not much of a king. He must be an imposter. He must be a fraud. And what's the result of this rejection? Look at verse 3. He was despised. Rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Despised, rejected by men. He was looked on as a pitiful man, unworthy of consideration. He was associated with sorrows and grief, not with confidence and strength. They esteemed or they valued much above Him, as so often many people do today. Well, that's the world into which Jesus is born. That is the world in which we live today. Nobody wants that humble Savior, right? Why do people reject Christ today? For the same reasons. But this is the world that Jesus came to save. And that brings us to verses 4-6 through where we see now thirdly the substitution of Jesus. We've seen the announcement and the rejection of Jesus. Now the substitution of Jesus. That is the work that he did in the place of his people. This is the focal point of the passage. This is the hinge on which everything turns. Here we see the reason that we need to know this. This is the reason for the darkness, for the suffering of Jesus the Savior. Verse 4 says, Surely He has borne our griefs. Uh Uh-oh. Here's where we fit into the story, right? He has carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. This is where God's people are brought into the picture. Why was he mistreated? Why was he killed? Why was he smitten by God? What had he done wrong? We know the answer to that, right? I hope we do. What What had he done wrong? Nothing. Then why was he there? Mankind looked at him. Mankind esteemed him as one who was receiving the just judgment of God for his own sins, for his own crimes. And they were blind to the reality. And here we see the reality. It wasn't his own sins that he was punished for. He wasn't executed for his own transgressions. It was for yours. It was for mine. The focus is on our sin and how serious it was that the Son of God had to die for it. Sin is man's ultimate problem. It separates us from God and it brings His judgment. So when Jesus came to this earth, He came to fix that. Verse 5 goes on, but He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds, we are healed. That tells us not just about His suffering, but it tells us what it accomplished. The piercing the crushing, the chastising, that was his. But the transgressions and the iniquities are ours. What we see happen to Jesus on the cross is what should have happened to us eternally because it was our sin that he was being punished for. But he took it all on himself. Why? To bring us peace. Ah, see, there it is, Christmas time, peace on earth, goodwill toward men, let there be peace in the Middle East, let there be peace everywhere, and let's all just get along. That's not what that's talking about. That peace would be awesome if we could achieve it, but there's a greater peace that's more important, even if we don't. This is peace with God. Whereas in our sin, we are rebels at war with God. The son of God laid down his life that we might be brought to peace with God. That's what that is about. And so that we might be healed, that we might be rescued from our sin and its punishment, that we might, yes, not just be forgiven, but be brought into the family of God as his own righteous child. Jesus bore on himself the wrath of God on sin so that we might be saved. Now look at verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. Well, all, that doesn't... It's not everybody, right? There are some exceptions, right? I've done a pretty good job, haven't I? We have turned everyone to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We were the ones who had gone astray from him. But Christ stood in our place and was punished for our sin so that we could be saved. That's what the Apostle Paul is talking about in Second Corinthians chap- uh, chapter 5, verse 21. When he says, For our sake he, the Father, made him, that is Christ, to be sin." who knew no sin, so that in him, that is in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. What do we see in that verse? We see the doctrine of substitution. We see the doctrine of imputation. What does that mean? He stood in our place. He paid for our sin. Our sin was placed on him so that his righteousness might be placed on us. What a wonderful and marvelous exchange, isn't it? Well, I'm glad we have that explanation because when we get to verses 7 through 9, the passage goes on to describe the means by which the Savior would accomplish this salvation, how he would be the substitute. And so in these verses, we see the death of Jesus. And my clicker is stopped. Gabe, can you help me out? There we go, the death of Jesus. If we don't have the good news of salvation through His death, and if we don't have the true, uh, the truth of His resurrection, then these verses are very dark and hopeless. But because we've already seen the end game, we know this isn't the end of the story. Verses seven through nine are actually a sort of outline of Jesus' trial and His death, as recorded in the Gospels. Verse 7 then says, He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. This makes clear that the Savior would go to his death silently and willingly, even though he would be unjustly executed. Well, is that not exactly what Jesus' trial was like? He was indeed oppressed and mistreated by court officials who had decided his fate before the trial ever began. And like the end of verse 9 will say, there was no sin or guilt on his part. They had to make stuff up. They had to fabricate stories in order to execute Jesus. His trial was a complete sham. And Jesus kept quiet. Why? Because he's the suffering servant. He wasn't here to save his own life, he wasn't here even to save his own reputation. He was not here to silence the haters. And he was not here to stand up merely for a just cause and be a martyr. His mission was to seek and to save the lost. And in order to do that, he had to lay down his life for his sheep. And that is exactly what he did. The verse eight says, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? In other words, by this sham of a trial, he was judged and carried away to death. But notice that last phrase, for the transgression of my people. It's another reminder of why he did all this. As the angel said in Matthew 1, verse 21, that we saw before, to save his people from their sins. Now look at verse 9. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. I want to know how reliable, how trustworthy, how detailed the prophecies of Jesus are. This tells us how he'll be buried. And it breaks convention. You can't predict this stuff on your own. When Jesus was crucified on the cross as a common criminal, the intention is to take his dead body and throw it in a mass grave in a pit somewhere outside the city. That is what we would have expected to happen. And yet 700 plus years before this happens, there's a prophecy that his grave will be made, not just with the wicked, but with a rich man. It shows here that even the wicked who are set on putting Christ to death can only do so much. They can only act within God's will. And this grave with the rich man is fulfilled in the decision of Joseph of Arimathea to use his own tomb that he had purchased with his own money as a burial place for Jesus' body. So here it is. The death of the Lord Jesus Christ, scorned by the world, scorned by those who do not believe, he bore the wrath of God on himself to graciously and glorious, gloriously save his own people from their sins. The Apostle Peter makes much of this in First Peter Chapter two, when he says he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. That brings us to verses 10 through 12, where we see finally the reward of Jesus, And that reward is twofold. It's the reward that is for him, and it is the reward that is from him. There is a reward for Jesus here, and then there is a reward for his people. As we saw at the very beginning, all this suffering and humiliation was not the end of the story. It was leading to a a certain end, a glorious end. These verses show us what that glorious end is. That the Savior is alive, and it's not just that he's alive, it's that he was successful in his mission. So verse 10 begins, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. You know what that phrase means, literally? It's the idea of it was God's pleasure to crush him. Now that doesn't mean that there's some sort of twisted delight in watching him suffer. That's not what this is talking about. What it means is God had set this plan in motion for a particular purpose, and it was God's will to accomplish that purpose. And he did. So the verse goes on. He has put him to grief. The suffering of Christ on behalf of his people was brought on by God the Father himself for his own good purposes, and for the sake of his people. We need to understand, the cross was not a mistake. The cross is where God secured the salvation of his people. And here is the reward for Christ. We read, When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Wait a minute. This one that men can't even recognize anymore because he's been beaten so badly? This one who's going to die? He is going to see his offspring? He's going to prolong his days and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand? Really? There is an implication here of his resurrection from the grave and the success of his mission. The Savior, after laying down his life, for his people, as a sacrifice for their sins, will see the fruit of his work. He will see his people saved. You need to understand something theologically about this. This is huge. This is not a promise that salvation will be possible. This is a promise that salvation is accomplished. Christ's atonement for his people on the cross was a success. That's why he said it is finished. Verse 11 goes on. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By this knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities." The Father and the Son are satisfied by the finished work, Christ on the cross. And as a result, his people are saved from their sin, and they are set apart unto him forever. That's what he came to do. Verse 12 then goes on and adds one more detail. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. I love that. He was numbered with the transgressors. Who are the transgressors? Well, the initial context here is Israel, but it points to all the people of God, all the people he came to save. He was numbered with you. He was numbered with me. What does Emmanuel mean? with us think about that god with us and what he accomplished means that we can be with him and again the language of verse 12 here is language of completion of victory This prophecy was written 700 some years before any of this ever happened. And it's written as if it's already done. Why? Because when God makes a promise, it will be accomplished. It is as good as done. But now notice the word intercession. This is the ongoing ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. In John 14, Jesus promises that he will not leave his people alone in the world. The story wasn't even over at the cross. It wasn't even over at the resurrection. It is continuing, which means that everything Jesus does and has promised to do after the resurrection is also as good as done. And what is he doing right now? He is interceding. For who? The transgressors. That's you. That's me. He is interceding. He is our continued mediator with God the Father. And it is by that mediation that we have acceptance before God because we could never stand there on our own. But when we stand there clothed in the righteousness of Christ, his testimony to his own Father is their mind. And so he doesn't just secure our salvation at some moment in the past. He indeed brings us into an eternity, a relationship with himself. Where he represents us as saved before the Father's throne. And in that relationship, he leads us, he protects us, he provides for us, he teaches us, he brings us to perfection in his presence forever. He brings our salvation to its completion at glorification. That's what he does. So, this glorious passage, this well known passage that so many people love to read and hear, this passage gives us a complete picture of what Christ has done and what he continues to do. Victory accomplished, justice served, sin defeated. Glory given, people saved, and our future secure. This passage gives us a realistic picture of men. Have you noticed? It keeps calling men the transgressors. That's not a flattering term. I don't recommend that you greet your family on Christmas Day with that. Merry Christmas, transgressors. But it is a realistic picture of who we are, isn't it? It's a reminder of our desperate need for a Savior, why all of this matters. So it is by this passage that we learn who we are, that we are by nature alienated from God, that we are hopeless in our sin. We're hopeless to see it for what it is, and we are certainly hopeless to do anything about it. But we also see that there is a substitute given by God who died in our place, who secured salvation for all who believe in Him. And then there is a picture of an ongoing ministry in the lives of His people where He leads them all the way to their eternal home. Now, if you're among us this morning and you are not a Christian, If you have never looked to Christ as your Savior from your sin and repented and come to Him in faith, are you beginning to recognize your sinful condition yet? If you are not a follower of Christ, then the promises and the glory of this text do not belong to you. It only belongs to those who by faith repent of their sin and confess Jesus as Savior and Lord. And I beg you today, if you have not done so already, to come to Christ, to receive salvation, to receive eternal life by faith in Him alone. Come to Christ in repentance and faith, and you will find the salvation. You will find the grace and mercy of God. And Christians... This is what Christ has done for you. This is who you are in Him. We're not used to thinking about it that way from an Old Testament passage, but this describes the sin of men, the need of man, the provision that God has given, and the result for all those who put their faith in Him. We are sheep that went astray, but Jesus laid his own life down to save us. We are sinners, but we are sinners who are saved by grace alone. Nothing more, nothing less. So Christians live by that truth today. Christ has saved you, and he is sustaining you every day. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. And in Him, you have ultimate joy and peace and stability. You have strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. You have blessings with 10,000 beside. So, let come what may. Is 2021 going to be better than 2020? I don't No. How's that for an encouraging prophecy? We're going to live our best life now in 2021? I don't know, humanly speaking. But it doesn't matter for a Christian, does it? Let come what may. Our salvation is secure and our hope is in heaven. Pursue holiness. Pursue Christ-likeness. Pray for and cultivate a righteous life and godly character in yourself and in those around you by God's grace. Be who you are in light of what Scripture teaches. That's what Paul talks about in Colossians chapter 1. I want to close with this. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, in whom we have redemption, forgiveness of sins. Let's pray.